At the end of April 1902, remnants of the Filipino resistance hid deep in the volcanoes of central Luzon. President Aguinaldo was captured a month earlier, and the U.S. was out for blood. America's primary target now was a turncoat named David Fagan. Fagan had escaped his army campsite several years ago and defected to train new units of revolutionary fighters. Wherever David went, local resistance became stronger. Guerrilla units became more disciplined, more accurate, and more deadly. David was also a black man from the Deep South. He warned dark-skinned Filipinos about what life was like under American rule. That was unacceptable to the U.S. government. Before the war could end, Fagan had to be captured and punished. And so Brigadier General Frederick Funston was sent in to finish the job. So at the end of the month, the General's scouts stepped up mountain patrols. American forces pinched guerrilla fighters by using a web of telegraph lines to transmit information in real time. Note from General Funston. Black country being scouted constantly. Stop. Prevent bands coming out of mountains. Stop. Insurrectos not willing to surrender. Stop. Twelve men taken away. Stop. As Fagan and Funston circled each other, the American general realized his adversary meant to negotiate. After all these years, most Filipinos really wanted to come home and get amnesty. Now, if the rebels were able to formally surrender, the army's hand would be stayed by the governors in Manila. Funston was determined to prevent that. These men would go out fighting, whether they wanted to or not. So April 17th, Filipino forces set it on the western side of Mount Ariat. April 18th, Lieutenant Mitchell leads three companies along the western side, while Funston spreads out on the east. The web begins to close. April 26th, another officer wires Manila. Enemy will, if possible, be killed or captured and made to answer for his crimes. David's commanding officer, a General Jose Alejandrino, slips by a group of American scouts and ducks out of the forest. To avoid detection, Alejandrino takes just one revolver and a personal aid. They move through the volcano before dawn, and on April 27th, they walk past the outpost guard. At 4.30 a.m., Alejandrino presents himself right in front of U.S. headquarters. The local major is woken from bed, throws on his uniform, and yells at his sentries. How could they let the enemy walk right through town? Dozens of soldiers had a chance to shoot Alejandrino, but they just looked like grubby townspeople. Now, American commanders had no choice but to acknowledge the Filipinos' peaceful intentions. The major grabs Alejandrino's revolver and shoves the prisoners of war into an empty house. He then wires General Funston, who rides from San Isidro. When Funston arrives, he curses his own men, but holds back in the company of his adversary. When they appear, Generals Funston and Alejandrino stare at each other. They had been fighting for two years, but had never met one another in person. The American spoke first. You cannot surrender yourself without first delivering Fagan. At that, Alejandrino straightens up. The surrender of Fagan is an infamy which I cannot commit. I know that if you catch him in your hands, you would be capable of bathing him in petroleum and burning him alive. Now Funston clenches his jaw, but stares back in silence. Fighting Fred had no qualms about killing one more insurrecto. 
Alejandrino continues. You have soldiers. Why don't you catch him yourself? Funson walks closer, breathes on Alejandrino. Then you will remain a prisoner. The Filipino general looks down at Funston and holds his composure. Alejandrino had walked into town of his own free will, but what he said next would determine how close he came to the noose. I came here because of my confidence in the honor of the American army. I believed in what General MacArthur, Funston's boss, promised that you would permit me to return to our campsite. Funston again eyes him back and is silent. If I was mistaken and you insist on my remaining a prisoner, I will have to resign myself to force. But you should know, General, that no one will surrender once they've come to know such unjust treatment. Funston responds, Then you are under arrest. He turns to his two soldiers. Attach your bayonets. Lock yourselves in the room with him. This time, nobody escapes. Fighting Fred prepared his final manhunt. But the Americans were already too late. Captain David Fagan had made a run for it and planned to disappear forever. My fellow citizens, there is one thought I want you always to bear in mind. The hour of your redemption is here. Remember that America is not in war for the sake of war. The times call loudly to each of us for loyalty. The final outcome will be determined in the factories, the mills, the shops. No race can prosper till it earns as much dignity and tilling the field as in fighting the war. You my opposer when I want freedom. You my opposer when I want justice. You my opposer when I want equality. Wala ba sa inyong nagnanasang iyan ang kanyang buhay para sa Pilipinas? We do not want the Filipinos for citizens. We the armor, get them. This war is a people's war, and every citizen must declare himself American or traitor. Hi, I'm Joseph Eden Hawthorne, and you're listening to American Trader, The Search for David Fagan. This is an investigation into one of the greatest heroes turned defector in history. Over a hundred years ago, David made headlines across the U.S. when he switched sides to become an officer in the Filipino army. Theodore Roosevelt's administration put a bounty on Fagan's head, and U.S. sharpshooters hunted the turncoat for years before cornering him within that volcano Mount Ariette. But when the Americans moved in, Fagan disappeared, and his story as a black resistance leader would haunt the army for years to come. David fought alongside powerful generals and politicians, helping to expose American concentration camps and war crimes. His fight paved the way for a congressional investigation that nearly toppled the Roosevelt presidency. Yet for all his success, white officers rewrote military records and erased Fagan's name from battle logs. David's story was covered up for nearly a century, and his ultimate fate remains a mystery. American Trader retraces David's roots from the Jim Crow South to San Juan Hill to the Philippine Mountains. As we retell Fagan's war stories, our producers search for the truth, family, and closure. We will investigate Fagan's sightings around the world and try to separate fact 
from fiction. As an early warning, this show features depictions of death and violence. The sounds we use are not graphic, but they are intense and may be triggering to some listeners. This is not your normal history podcast. If you're ready then, let's begin. The manhunt you heard earlier was actually near the end of our story. To understand David Fagan's war in the Philippines, you need to believe that this conflict started with some good intentions. Four years earlier, in 1898, that same General Funston actually was just a volunteer with the Cuban independence movement. So our story is mostly going to be set in the Philippines and the U.S. It's important to start in Cuba to get context for this time. Funston had no strong ties to the Caribbean. His father was an Irish immigrant who fought in the Civil War before moving to Kansas. But much like Fagan and many young Americans at the turn of the century, Fred Funston wanted to help free local peoples from colonial rule. So in the 1890s, Cuba has a unique relationship with the United States. Being less than 100 miles from Florida, where David coincidentally grew up, the island has cultural, economic, and political ties to the United States. When Cuban nationalists take up arms to fight against the Spanish, many Americans, North Americans, were sympathetic to the Cuban cause. White Americans compared the Cuban Revolution to the spirit of 1776, to their own American Revolution. Many black Americans saw this as a fight for racial justice or racial freedom. Now, when our friend Frederick Funston joins at the very end of the century, in 1898, Cuba is in a bloody civil war, almost a stalemate, with civilians caught between Spanish imperial troops and local guerrilla fighters. The North American newspapers, sometimes known as the Yellow Press, reported daily atrocities about the Spanish army. We will pick up this thread later, because it's important to know not everyone believed the media. But suffice it is to say that in 1898, Madrid was becoming a sort of international pariah for its indiscriminate killings and its forced, unsanitary concentration camps. Now, in Tampa, a teenage David Fagan was working as a phosphate miner and was probably aware or at least familiar of reports of mass slaughter on the island. David couldn't read yet, but he lived amongst a large Cuban immigrant community and just a few hundred miles from the island itself. Fred Funston was personally frustrated with his own government for their lack of support in the revolution. To Funston, Florida and the United States might as well have been on a different planet for all their lack of support. Fred was increasingly frustrated that his home government refused to send aid or troops to help free the Cuban people. He literally had to sneak out of Charleston to fight for Cuba, and now he was having to sneak out of Havana to get back home. Fred was sick, he had come down with a fever, and he wasn't to use in the battlefield, so he was heading home to Kansas. But before he left, as fate would have it, Fred Funston will witness one of the biggest turning points in American history. You see, if we transport back to Havana in February of 1898, Fred Funston was getting ready to leave the Cuban independence movement. At the same time, the U.S. battleship Maine actually arrived to offer some moral support. It was the first official American naval vessel to grace Cuba in several years. It was there as a friendly observer. On February 15th, Fred Funston shivered and wrapped a blanket around himself as he rocked aboard a small fishing boat. A cloudy, 
Still air covered Havana, and Funston fought the urge to sleep so he could have one last glimpse of the city. Havana celebrated a pre-Lent festival as partygoers wore colorful masks and danced through the streets. It seemed the war was passing by, people laughed, and music filled the air. Funston stared hard as the main swayed in harbor, and he looked up to see Clara Barton, president of the Red Cross, sitting in a nearby apartment. He thought, how many nurses or doctors would it take for President McKinley to stand up to Cuba? He and many Americans at the time were frustrated with the federal government. How many congressional reports did the president need to read? How many plantations needed to be burned? How many dead Cubans was enough for the government to do something? (sighs) Perhaps the fever and frustration were getting to him. It was good to see American boots at least near the ground. By day, sailors aboard the main had entertained Spanish officers and observed the city. Now, during Carnival, men were ordered to stay aboard. At 9 p.m. that night, the bugler played taps to signal lights out. At 9.30, the ship's captain was in his cabin, struggling to write a letter to his wife. He'd forgotten a previous note in his coat pocket, and knew that she was expecting a reply. For a moment, the captain, Funston, and Americans around Havana listened to the echo of the bugle. Then they turned back to their papers. At 9.40, a watch officer moved along the port, gravitating toward a 10-inch turret and looking across the calm water to the city lights. A fellow lieutenant came over, spoke sternly, and they both laughed. Funston watched as the men sat at the port side of the main, their feet up on the rail. Behind Fred, American journalists littered the city celebrating. As I said before, the Cuban War was big business for the American press. Every editor worth their salary had sent someone to Cuba to cover the sensational and gruesome war. Fred coughed, shivered again, and thought of Kansas. It would be good to eat real food again. As Funston kicked the seat in front of him, he saw a powerful shutter begin under the forward section of the main. Never seen a ship do that in calm waters before. Fred then turned his head to see an explosion near the two watch officers, the whole starboard side of the deck blowing up and springing into the air, like a crater engulfed in flames. The men tried to leap for cover and run to escape the carnage. There was another dull, sullen roar and a sharp explosion. A train of cement chunks, blocks of wood, steel railings, and fragments of gratings fell on the deck. Bunsen had seen men killed, but he winced as another piece of cement hit an American on the head and sent their body rolling. The officers somehow jumped up to follow his compatriot. They called after one another as they ran for cover. Funston looked up to see Clara Barton's door blowing wide open with her papers blowing everywhere. She would later describe a volcanic explosion. The deafening roar was such a burst of thunder as perhaps one had never seen before. And off to the right, over the bay, the air was filled with a blaze of light, and this in turn with black specks, like huge specters flying through the air. 
just a few hundred yards away, New Yorker Frank Weimenheimer heard a terrible roar as gigantic pieces of steel, cement, and wood splintered blasted into the sky. It looked as though the whole inside of the ship had blown up. Funston saw another American step through the door of a cafe, and the next explosion tore plaster off the ceiling. Every light in the cafe went out, and every other electrical light soon followed. People kept calling, What is it? What is it? The ship shook, and the captain ran to the main deck as he coughed the smoke. He considered escaping through a shattered porthole, but thought better of it. The commander made his way through the ship and nearly collided with his orderly, who reported the explosion and guided him to the main deck. Unsure of an attack, the officers posted sentries, but soon realized the scope of the disaster. The foremost part of the ship had exploded, killing most of the enlisted men and trapping many in a tangle of hammocks and steel. Fragments of the battleship and bodies went flying for nearly a half-mile radius, and the bow was already sinking rapidly. Funston heard cries of, Lord, God, help, save us. The cries did not last more than a couple of minutes before a column of flame and smoke went up to 150 feet. Meanwhile, the ship's chaplain tried to stand nearby and call men to say the name of Jesus, calling absolution over and over. Soldiers who weren't killed instantly faced risks of burning or drowning. Spanish officers began to work like mad from the Alfonso VII to search for survivors and row over to them. The Maine's captain saw smokestacks in the water and tried to get lifeboats out before the ship went down completely. But Funston could already see white forms bubbling in the water, and the captain gave up when he saw most fire equipment had been destroyed and only three of 13 lifeboats were left. True to his post, the commander was the last to abandon ship, but there wasn't much to that. The main was sinking so rapidly that most officers were able to step from the ship onto a surface boat, and virtually all left last. Within an hour, the main's captain had accounted for all the men that he could, and rushed for a telegraph. Main blown up in Havana Harbor at 9.40 tonight and destroyed. Stop! Many wounded and doubtless more killed or drowned. Stop. Wounded and others on Spanish man of war and ward line steamer. Stop. Meanwhile, Funston looked at the explosion and was sick and speechless. Then he shook his head. This too shall pass, he thought. America would never fight over one measly ship. Funston's doubt would soon be proven wrong. Over the next four months, the destruction of the Maine became a 9-11 type event, and every family, from Vanderbilt's to Fagan's, felt affected. The ship's death toll approached 300 sailors, and politicians began to call for justice, for revenge. Newspapers were basically the sole media outlet at the time, and remember, they had been advocating for intervention before the explosion. Now papers like the New York Journal began to holler, Destruction of the warship Maine was the work of an enemy. All caps. The journal went on to offer a $50,000 reward for the perpetrators and wrote something else interesting. Naval officers think the Maine was destroyed by a Spanish mine. Assistant Secretary Roosevelt convinced the explosion was not an accident. 
We'll come back to that tidbit later. So now in the spring, President William McKinley publicly pleads for calm, but evidence begins to overwhelm the White House. Naval experts leak intelligence of foul play underneath the battleship's hull, and papers like the journal continue to publish sensational stories. There was a popular myth about this time that scandal-hungry newspapers drove the American public into a rabid war fever. There isn't direct evidence of that, but I think the media certainly helped lay the groundwork for politicians in Congress. Here are some headlines from that time. Crisis at hand. Growing belief in Spanish treachery. Spanish ships on our coast. Mysterious warships seen by incoming vessels, maybe privateers. We have got to fight. House resolution not strong enough to suit American patriotism. Some newspapers published reports of a mysterious rowboat approaching the Maine shortly before the explosion, and others described threats from ultranationalist Spaniards. Now, it's important to say here that Madrid denied any responsibility and actually offered to do a joint investigation of the USS Maine. Of course, the Spanish had such a poor reputation by this point that no one took their word at face value. There were certainly war skeptics, though, and we're going to come back to them in later episodes. What's important now is that a fairly young naval secretary named Theodore Roosevelt ordered a scuba diver investigation, which found pieces of the battleship turned inward from the explosion. They concluded, once and for all, that the main had been purposefully blown up. And furthermore, observers like Roosevelt declared that only the Spanish had the means and motives to carry out such an attack. So America was under assault, but who would defend us? Young men, including David Fagan and Fred Funston, were ready to answer the call. The push for war became so strong in Washington, D.C., that the vice president informed William McKinley he was in danger of losing confidence in Congress if he did not act. It's unthinkable today, but the House and Senate were prepared to declare war on Spain with or without the president. So at the end of April, President McKinley severs ties with Madrid and prepares naval war plans. By May, tens of thousands of volunteers converged on David's hometown of Tampa. The U.S. Army plans to launch its largest ever amphibious invasion to avenge the Maine and finish off the Spanish Empire. Young American men continue to rush into Florida, and by the beginning of June 1898, the wet season is about to begin. The U.S. needs to act fast if it truly wants to punish the Spanish. Now in Tampa, there are limited professional or regular soldiers, and so the Army Chief calls upon the all-black 24th and 25th Infantry, as well as the 9th and 10th Cavalry. These elite units were made up of Western fighters and cowboys who served in the Indian Wars. They were nicknamed Buffalo Soldiers by the Native Americans they met, apparently for their dark curly hair and their vicious fighting style. To swell the ranks, the Buffalo Soldiers recruited local young men as they traveled south. So this is where a 19-year-old David Fagan lies about his age on June 4th and enlists with the help of prominent Tampa citizens. So on June 7th, David Fagan is drilling with dozens of new soldiers in Company H. The raw recruits feel the summer Florida heat beat down on them as they practice marching and aiming their rifles. Fagan and his comrades sweat through their winter fatigues and take time to nurse bruises 
from a fight the previous evening. In the late morning, David looks around the tents of black and white units, sensing a change in camp. Word spreads like a slow-motion stampede that the invasion is beginning. Now, David isn't going to miss his first chance at combat. He pushes through packed quarters to grab his boots, rifle, and anything else within arm's distance. The teenager hears a nearby soldier mumbling that he'll be glad to be out of Tampa. David nods along and rushes to get in line with Company H. Up to five units were coming in a day now, and it soon became clear the federal government did not have enough ships to meet demand. Raw recruits like David would have to fight for a ticket to Cuba. Now, before declaring war, Congress appropriated $50 million in 1898 money for purchasing and retrofitting large ships. The government bought battleships, cattle ships, and yachts from around the world. And yet the soldiers just kept flooding in. This made a lot of new men nervous. One such man was Lieutenant Colonel Theodore Roosevelt, who led a regiment of volunteer, untrained soldiers. To illustrate the unprofessional nature of many volunteers... Roosevelt's New York Cavalry became famous for rampaging in Texas and Tampa, stealing pigs and chickens to make up for army rations. DR's regiment was aptly named Teddy's Terrors before the press experimented with Teddy's Cowboy Contingent, Roosevelt's Riotous Rounders, Teddy's Gilded Gang, Teddy's Cavalry Cowpunchers, and Teddy's Texas Tarantulas before settling on the Rough Riders. Now this distinction between regular professional soldiers and volunteers will come up again in the podcast, so keep an eye out for that. Now, when news of the invasion spread, soldiers from Roosevelt to Fagan to Funston realized that they had to march nine miles from the city of Tampa to the port. But when Teddy saw a coal train heading away from the coast, he rushed over and hollered, Where are you going, boys? To reload fuel, they responded, Not now. We have new orders. T.R. held up his rifle and directed the vehicle back the way it came. Now, Teddy wasn't the first to get this idea. Another outfit had just captured a train at Bayonet. Journalist Charles Post was preparing to move the cars onto a new track when they heard a horn from the distance. There came a waving and a hollering far up the track. Post looked, and he saw a trademark polka dot pink and blue bandana. A train was approaching, and in the open car was Teddy, Colonel Theodore Roosevelt, grinning as he passed our line of flat cars. His khaki uniform looked as if it had been slept in, as it always did. Charles Post and his regiment stood with mouths agape for a moment. Then they started to realize both regiments were from New York. They were going to be assigned to the same ship. That afternoon, when Roosevelt and Fagan arrived in the port, they found a swarming ant heap of humanity. Ships had all been assigned to multiple regiments, but no one seemed to be in charge. When a steamer filled up, it just left. So while Teddy's commander went to check paperwork, the colonel ran to his boxcar and double-quickened the Rough Riders to sneak out onto their transport, the Yucatan. They arrived just in time to hold her against the 2nd regulars and 71st, who had arrived a little too late, being a shade less ready than we were in the matter of individual initiative. 
That's our ship, a member of another regiment yelled out as T.R. lifted the gangplank. Well, Roosevelt called from deck with a toothy smile, we seem to have it. For his part, David would seem to float between companies H and I in the 24th Regiment, and his fate at port seems like a bit of a coin flip. On one hand, hundreds of new recruits stayed behind to train, and David was nothing if not green. On the other hand, hundreds of recruits integrated into regular units to boost their numbers and experience. Just days earlier, General Nelson Miles estimated that nearly half his troops were untested. Between 30 and 40% are undrilled, and in one regiment, over 300 had never fired a gun. I think if any recruits made it onto a ship, it would be David Fagan. For mining phosphate nearby, David was incredibly strong, fit, personable, and he would later prove to be an excellent fighter. So if we assume that David made it on to the City of Washington transport ship, I think it's worth marveling at this accomplishment. Fagan's parents were enslaved, but here he was, aboard the greatest invasion up to that point in American history. Setting out from Tampa, there were 31 transports, with 16,000 fully armed enlisted men, 819 officers, 10 million pounds of canned rations, a floating hospital, drinking water ship, torpedo boats, Civil War-era paddle wheelers, and 100 reporters and observers for good measure. For the duration of the voyage, Fagan's city of Washington and Roosevelt's Yucatan would travel side by side in the rear together. That first night aboard, Fagan's crew came to the deck and played the Star-Spangled Banner. For decades, Cubans had fought for their freedom and apparently begged the U.S. for help. In a few short months, the North Americans had rushed to war, and in just a few hours, soldiers had packed aboard these transport ships heading south. Theodore Roosevelt listened to the Buffalo soldiers play and wrote a letter home to his wife. Today, we are steaming southward toward the Sapphire Sea, wind rippling under an almost cloudless sky. We stood up on the bridge and watched the red sun sink and lights blaze up from the ship. It is a great historical expedition, and I thrill to feel a part of it. If we fail, of course we share the fate of all who do fail. But if we are allowed to succeed, we will have scored the first great triumph in what will be a world movement. On July 1st, David Fagan and Company H awoke at dawn for breakfast. Just a week ago, David emerged from sweat and feces-filled transport ship. From Rough Riders to Buffalo Soldiers, the men had stripped down their uniforms and danced naked around makeshift fires in the surf. It was a raucous, even comedic scene back then. When they were alone, black soldiers laughed about how red-faced Colonel Roosevelt had been when his horses were dropped into the water. Stop that damned animal torture, he had shouted at a frightened crane operator. Teddy was so desperate to be the first ashore that he'd flopped to the beach with just his uniform, toothbrush, and spectacles. Now David also remembered meeting Cuban soldiers who had defended the U.S. landing and traded mementos with the fresh-faced North Americans. 
The Rough Riders and other white soldiers were shocked by the locals' dark skin, but David was thrilled. It was good to see so many armed black men. There were possibly more black guns than white. See, this was a people's uprising, and they were severely underfunded. Most Cubans lacked shoes or formal uniforms, but that day they beat back Spanish snipers, so David's regiment could survive the surf. Now, the 24th Infantry planned to return the favor. David was given three days of rations, and at 6.30, American artillery began to fire from El Pozo Hill. Companies ahead of Fagan were ordered to march inland as the Spanish returned fire from the hills around Santiago. The European defenders hid around San Juan and Kettle Hill with barbed wire, snipers, and stone fortifications. Unlike the Americans, their guns were smokeless and difficult to target. David was four miles from the front at the far rear and far left when his company was called to move at 8 a.m., it soon became clear that U.S. Navy guns were out of range, and Americans were forced to evade the Spanish as they took heavy fire. The 24th Infantry was on course for San Juan Hill when they heard another engagement to their right. The 25th Infantry, another black regiment, was trying to break the Spanish stronghold. Back in Washington, McKinley watched the telegraphs with horror as word came back that American generals had underestimated the cost of taking a town called El Cane. This small town was a kind of linchpin. The longer it took Americans to secure Kane, the more reinforcements everywhere would bottle up. So David heard the firefight, but he knew none of this. He only saw that the foliage was thinning out. Here's a quote from his corporal, John Kahn. As we advanced, we could hear the small arms more and more distinctly. After we had advanced about a mile, we began to meet the wounded coming to the rear. In short time, the road was almost choked entirely with wounded and stragglers. Meanwhile, Rough Riders and Cuban guerrillas looked up to see a huge, fat, yellow, quivering arrow in the sky. The army was experimenting with a single observation balloon, which followed Theodore Roosevelt's volunteers as they advanced toward Kettle Hill. Soon, the New Yorkers ducked for cover. The smokeless Spanish Mausers made a buzzing sound and some of the bullets seemed to pop in the air. In stark contrast to most of his troops, Captain Bucky O'Neill moved among troops, smoking a cigarette as his soldiers begged him to take cover. He addressed one soldier by blowing a long puff and saying, Sergeant, the Spanish bullet isn't made that'll kill me. Minutes later, a bullet ripped into his mouth and went through his skull. The first officers to reach Kettle Hill ordered a charge and then stayed in cover as their troops were mowed down. It was, quote, slaughter, absolute slaughter, and enlisted men retreated to cover. Soon after, orders stopped coming. Teddy fixed his bandana to the back of his head for sun protection and tried to listen for the source of gunfire as he led his regiment through waist-high grass. Back on the left flank, David Fagan's men began to see combat around 11.30, again from Corporal John Kahn. It was terrible. There were wounded and dead men lying all along, beside and in the road, and the air seemed alive with bullets and shells of all description and caliber. You could not tell what direction they were coming from. All we could understand was that we were needed further at the front, and we could not shoot, but we could not see anything to shoot at. Not for nothing, this is considered some of the best Spanish fighting in the whole war. 
Around El Cane, 500 Spaniards held off thousands of American troops for hours. Fagan's company soon met the division commander, General Jacob Ford Kent, who sent them off. Boys, your medal is about to be tested. I'm relying on the 24th to make history. The fate of my record, and possibly the nation, depends upon you. Company H piles all their non-essential supplies and bedding, stripping down to just their clothes, canteens, and weapons. David picked his way through hundreds of men lying in the road as he made his way to the front line. The regimental chaplain sent them off, saying, Quit yourselves like men and fight. Fagan sprinted then and dived into the bed of the San Juan River, where rifles and cannon fire burst all around him. From Corporal Khan again, we were right in it then. Good shape, lots of music, very few drums. Company H exchanged fire and was a thousand miles from San Juan Hill when the order went out. Third Brigade, forward. The 24th Infantry was ordered to advance 150 yards and go prone. David looked at his ammunition, prayed, and got down on all fours. A Sergeant D.T. Brown was shot almost immediately, and Company H was nearly destroyed in front of a barbed wire fence. Soldiers started ripping through the wire like their lives depended on it, and by that point, most officers were wounded or lacking. Someone yelled, Let us charge! Another bugler sounded the call. Near Kettle Hill, Theodore Roosevelt waited and waited, but still no new orders. Teddy had spent months war planning, training, and traveling across the country. He wasn't here to sit on his horse and watch other people's glory. The lieutenant colonel moved up and told his reluctant men to follow him. When the volunteers hesitated behind their cover, Roosevelt pulled out his pistol and promised laggards they wouldn't have to worry about Spanish guns. Eventually, he reached an older captain who hesitated because he hadn't received any more commands. The colonel clenched his teeth. I give the order to charge. Let my men through, sir. T.R. pushed past, grinning, swinging his cowboy hat, and rushing in behind the 10th Cavalry. Nearby, a grizzled German sergeant shoved past other volunteers to get to the front. His comrades pleaded with him, Don't go up there, you'll be killed. And the sergeant responded, What in the hell are we here for? Reporters at a distance could see a few blue figures appearing at the bottom of the hill. Why? They're trying to take the position, a correspondent called out incredulously. Another gasped. It seems as if they made a terrible mistake. But Roosevelt jumped on his horse, Little Texas, to buck up his men. He set himself up as a target while those Spanish Mauser bullets grazed his uniform and his animal. Are you afraid to stand up while I am on horseback? He yelled to a soldier hiding behind a bush. Before Teddy could finish, the man was knocked over by a bullet, probably aimed at Roosevelt himself. American machine guns began to unload on Spanish trenches, and the soldiers soon realized that rapid-firing guns could keep the Europeans down faster than any artillery. From one Spanish officer, it was like a lawnmower cutting the grass over our trenches. We cannot stick up a finger without it getting cut off. With John Black Jack Pershing's 10th cavalry in the lead, Roosevelt dismounted and sprinted 40 yards up Kettle Hill 
as David Bacon charged up San Juan. One more time from Corporal Khan. When that pack of demons swept forward, the Spaniards stood as long as mortals could stand. Then they quit their trenches. They were in full retreat, and our army commenced to get even. The Spaniards and Americans wrestled in hand-to-hand combat, while Teddy shot his pistol and yelled, Holy Godfrey, what fun! Two Spanish soldiers jumped from a trench and tried to fire Lieutenant Colonel before they retreated. When Roosevelt saw, he pulled his Colt 38, salvaged from the USS Maine itself, and shot one of the men as he turned to run. The Europeans were about to fire on new American positions when they paused to hear a peculiar drumming sound. Americans searched for cover, but Teddy stopped them. It's the Gatlings, men, he shouted, hitting his thigh in delight. Our Gatlings! Across the South Cuban hills, white, black, and brown soldiers mixed together as they overwhelmed the Spanish Imperial Army. They came from different classes, races, countries, and religions, but these men were united behind the full industrial force of the United States. It was over 30 long years, a generation since the Civil War, but America was once again fully mobilized to fight for freedom, and victory was just a few cleanup battles away. In the words of Abraham Lincoln's former secretary, it was a splendid little war. Here's what we know so far. American public figures have been riled up about the Cuban Civil War for years. Colonial Spanish forces were massacring civilians, and the island was a humanitarian disaster. The explosion of the Maine was the final straw, or justification, for U.S. intervention in the Caribbean. So at the beginning of 1898, young men like Fred Funston and David Fagan rushed to enlist and find glory in Cuba, perhaps for liberty, vengeance, or just adventure. I wanted to include that scene in Tampa to give you an image of the war fever sweeping the U.S. When the conflict was declared, many Americans from metropolitan New York to rural Nebraska were genuinely excited about invading another country. To many people at the time, the war seemed worthwhile and justified. If the explosion of the Maine was like 9-11, then the Cuban War might be like the war in Afghanistan, at least initially. It seemed relatively quick and effective, America absolutely assaulted the enemy. But the war didn't end there. While Americans were preparing to invade Cuba, the U.S. Asiatic fleet was also immediately telegraphed and ordered to launch a preemptive strike on Manila. So here's where the Philippines come into the picture. But why would the U.S. attack a country on the other side of the planet? Well, the U.S. was worried about having naval supremacy and defending their transport ships as they went to Cuba. And there were a few Spanish fleets. There was one in the Caribbean, there were ships in Europe, in Madrid, and there was an armada in the Philippines, in Manila. U.S. officials worried that the Filipino fleet would be sent to the Caribbean to attack and possibly kill transport ships before soldiers could arrive and even fight in the war. Or worse that Spanish ships might actually attack undefended American cities. Now, if you remember earlier, before he volunteered for combat, 
Theodore Roosevelt was Assistant Secretary of the Navy. The day war was declared, he actually signed up for the Rough Riders, and he cabled the Pacific Fleet and Commodore George Dewey. It was time to break the Spanish Armada. So at the same time, Dewey thanked the British officers in Hong Kong that had hosted his fleet and sent a vessel for the Filipino resistance in exile. The British silently mourned their U.S. counterparts. Everyone knew that Manila Bay was well entrenched and that it was nearly a suicide mission to attack right into the Spanish heartland. This would be the last time they saw the boisterous Americans. Now, like the Cubans, Filipino nationalists had waited years for an opportunity, and they prepared a joint attack on Spanish bases. At the very beginning of this episode, David Fagan was running for his life, but he also was with a Filipino general named Jose Alejandrino. Alejandrino would actually join the U.S. vessels, along with his fellow general Antonio Luna, who prepared the attacks on Spanish forces. Like Theodore Roosevelt, most of the Filipino fighters were military novices, but Generals Antonio Luna and Jose Alejandrino, who we mentioned at the very beginning of the episode, had studied tactics obsessively, and both men were ready to risk their lives for the Filipino nation. By April 30th, Dewey's fleet was fueled and the flagship Olympia slowly moved around the coast of Luzon. Commodore Dewey ordered undersea telegraph lines cut. No one was getting in or out before the battle was complete. Now again, David Fagan is not aboard this fleet, but the Commodore is about to lay the groundwork for battles to come. Before dawn, Dewey tried to calm his nerves and keep down his breakfast of green tea, coffee, and hardtack. The American Pacific Fleet could see the small twinkle of light coming from Manila, and Dewey wrote that he was sick as a youngster going out to port into heavy sea on their first cruise. The flagship Olympia proceeded cautiously, and the fleet probed near Subic Bay. Finding it undefended, Dewey's ships continued to creep and creep towards Manila. Now, at this point, they were well within Spanish territory, but there were still no mines or ships to be found. At 9.45 p.m., the volcanic Bataan Peninsula came into view. At 11.30, a Spanish warning flare came, but then fell silent. The night was nearly windless, which made it easier for Spanish lookouts. Warships continued by and passed the heavily armed El Frale Point. Still nothing. Dewey turned to one of his officers. Now we have them, he said. As American warship after ship cleared the jagged rocks, the McCulloch had extra coal shoved into the furnace, which shot up sparks and smoke. A Spanish bugle rang out, and artillery shells blasted, splashing off the stern. The Spanish fired three more rounds as American ships returned fire, and then they mysteriously fell silent. Americans moved cautiously again, this time only 30 miles from Manila. Creeping, 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 with invisible mines below us and invisible ships ahead, wrote Dewey, and at about 3 a.m., lights in the capital were again visible. Men were ordered to stand easy as dawn approached. As light filled the harbor, Americans saw that the Spanish fleet was missing from Manila. Their hearts began to sink. Somehow, the armada had escaped. But Dewey sat on deck and observed his surroundings. Soon officers turned to the left, and they saw all the Spanish ships huddled together in nearby Cavite. The Commodore smiled, then ordered the sailors to run up flags on the Olympia. 
Men began to cheer as they translated, Remember the Maine, to hell with Spain. They could hear shots firing from Filipino General Antonio Luna, and he began to attack Manila by land. The U.S. Navy swung through the harbor with transports of Californians, Nebraskan, and Colorado soldiers landing nearby. Just as local Cuban forces had cleared the way for Buffalo soldiers, so too did the Filipinos for these Western compatriots. The Europeans were being squeezed by land and sea, and tens of thousands of civilians retreated into the walled Intramuros in central Manila. Spanish General Basilio Augustine tried to cable Madrid for reinforcements, but found the wires cut. He looked out to the Pacific and the impending assault, and issued a call to arms. The Americans have exhausted our patience and provoked war with their perfidious machinations. Their acts of treachery, their outrages against the laws of nations, vain designs, ridiculous boasts, prepare for the struggle. Let us resist with the Christian resolve and the patriotic cry of Viva España. Spanish guns began to thunder and rip into the water. Dewey ordered his ships to advance, and explosions in the bay finally showed the first mines breached. The Commodore continued to sit on the Olympia's deck and ordered all ships to hold fire. He came within 5,500 yards of the Spanish fleet, and at 5.42, Dewey leaned down to his skipper and said, You may fire when ready, Gridley. The squadron revolved to bring broadside guns on the enemy fleet. The plan was simple. American ships were to move in two-mile runs and shoot as quickly as possible. As the bay became thick with smoke, it was hard to see through binoculars. Officers kept up orders to move and fire as fast as they could. For several hours, no one knew how the other side was doing. Naval guns quickly blew open walls around Manila itself, with Filipino and American troops using this as an opportunity to advance. Now, now General Luna had customized uniforms for his men to make them look more professional, but the Americans tried to stay clear of the quote-unquote undisciplined locals. As U.S. troops took their first blockhouses, they shooed away Filipino fighters hoping to share their glory. Several times, Americans held up their guns to get their message across. Luna moved on in silent frustration. Meanwhile, the heat building up in the steel American ships was tremendous, with engine rooms reaching 150 degrees. Stokers, ammunition crews, and gunners stripped down until some wore just shoes. On the USS Raleigh, a lieutenant had gone down below deck to check on his men and found the crew in cut-off pieces of gum sack, dancing hula as they passed gunpowder singing a popular new song, There'll Be a Hot Time in the Old Town Tonight. Although the Spanish kept firing, nothing seemed to hit or harm the Americans. A Spanish shell on target for the Olympia exploded 100 feet in midair. One shell sought off ricking over an officer's head. Another smashed bridge gratings, and another sought a long sliver of wood right in front of the Commodore himself. On the USS Boston, Paymaster John Martin watched in horror as a Spanish shell came into the wardroom five feet above him and then failed to explode. All about and above, there were sputters and shrieks and the roars of projectiles gasped one officer. Now, the American aim wasn't much better. Maybe 3% of shells hit their targets. But in 1898, that kind of fire was deadly accurate. If naval guns had been in range in Cuba, in fact, David Fagan's victory might have been even quicker. But here in Manila, the wooden Spanish cruiser, the Castilla, had its primary and secondary batteries knocked out almost immediately. 
fire concentrated on the Spanish flagship, the Reina Cristina, scored direct hits on the pilot house, wounding the helmsman and crews of forward rapid-firing guns. The next attack disabled Cristina's steering gear and destroyed the ship's hospital, killing most of the wounded sailors and medical personnel. By 7.40, half the Reina Cristina's crew were killed or wounded, and the Spanish Commodore was afraid that the ship's magazine might explode at any moment. He ordered the Cristina head for shore, and it sank to the main deck. There, sailors abandoned ship and ironically transferred their flag to the gunboat Isla de Cuba. Five years later, the ship was raised and 80 skeletons were found in the sickbay. From shore, General Luna could hear the damage and felt the firepower of Spain slipping away. Still, the Filipino generals couldn't seem to break through Spanish fortifications. Now, the Americans hadn't yet destroyed the intramural walls, and so the general was left to secure a perimeter around the city. Battle lines and trenches weaved between allied Filipino and American troops, waiting to finish the job. By noon, the smoke settled, and everyone with access to binoculars could see the destruction. Over 12 Spanish warships were totally wrecked. 381 Spanish were killed or wounded. On the American side, just one unfortunate sailor died from heat stroke. Soon, the white flag was lifted over Cavite Harbor, and Dewey ordered one of his bands to play La Paloma. As officers rushed around to tell sailors of the surrender, scores of near-naked men cheered until they were hoarse. When one officer tried to clear his smoke stains, he was stopped by another. No, don't wash your hands. No one is allowed to wash his hands. We don't go into battle every day, and we're not going to wipe off any of the smoke and dirt. Now here's the thing. The Spanish fleet might have surrendered, but on land, Manila was still holding on. Battleships lazily shelled the city, while Filipino and American troops searched for a weak point to finish the fight. General Luna completely controlled the suburbs now, and Americans were seeing white flags pop up all around the city. Spanish soldiers had enough, and they abandoned blockhouses, forts, and trenches around the Intramuros. Filipino troops cheered and prepared to storm the city. But there weren't any Buffalo soldiers here, and this was not going to be a shared victory. Before Luna could give another order, the Americans loaded their weapons and aimed them at the locals. Officers told their enlisted men to run up the U.S. flag and commanded the native troops back to the outer limits of the city for further instruction. Luna cursed and fired several shots before ducking for cover. The Americans went on. To protect the Spanish from slaughter, Filipino fighters are forbidden to enter Manila. Pillage, rapine, violence by native inhabitants must be prevented at all cost. Antonio Luna cursed again. Since when did Americans care so much about the welfare of the Spanish? From the bay, several Filipino and American officers watched the sight in disbelief. One turned to his commander. Captain, I shouldn't be surprised if this whole performance was a sham. Don't you notice how slow the Olympia is firing? I just saw a signal from Nilla, and I have not seen the Monterey fire at all, and no one is firing on us. The captain smiled and looked back. Yes, I shouldn't be surprised if it were a sham at all. David Fagan was celebrating in Cuba, but he would soon find a toxic environment in the Philippines. The Americans had betrayed their local allies, and the Filipino army would not soon forget.
And that's episode one. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, I'd like to be honest about this project. I'm a podcast producer and former educator. For years, I've been trying to tell a story about the scandals and cover-ups surrounding the Philippine-American War. Very recent historical breakthroughs have given me an opportunity to tell the story about David Fagan. This is a pilot for a 10-episode season I'd like to make about Fagan, the war, and the turn of the 20th century. A full show takes time, expertise, and equipment, and so I'm pitching to several studios and educational grants. My dream is to make exciting, action-packed episodes with supplemental interviews with historians to help teach this time period. There's a really easy way for you to help make this a reality. Once you finish listening, please subscribe, but also rate and review on the podcast player of your choice. It really helps us get noticed and show that there is demand for this show. If you have any questions, comments, advice, please reach out at americantraderpodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you, and I look forward to making the rest of this. (laughs) Thanks again for listening.